0: talk is called The Responsive Heart. I'd like to start with a part of a poem by Tony Hoagland called What Narcissism Means to Me. And the name of the poem is The News. This year, it seems like everyone is getting tattoos, sharks, and Chinese characters hummingbirds, and musical notes. But the tattoo tattoo I would like to get is of a fist and a rose. But I can't tell how they will fit together on my shoulder. If the rose is inside the fist, it will be crushed or hidden. If the fist is closed, as a fist by definition is, It cannot reach out and touch the rose. Yet the only tattoo I want is of a fist and a rose together. Fist that helps you survive. Rose without which you have no reason to. I see this poem as about this predicament that Michelle talked about last night, the ambivalence that we have. The wish to be connected to the world, which is the rose, and the wish to have protection in our hearts, which is the fist. So we want both. But as the poem said, it's a little bit of a predicament how we can have both of those, a closed heart and connection with the world. So this week we've been spending our time opening the heart. And we come up against this ambivalence over and over again. Closed or open heart, what are we to do? with our longing for connection in this world. Tonight's talk is about all four of the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes and about the balance that all four of them can bring that can help us with this longing for an open heart, can help us feel a different kind of protection than the fist, the closed heart the four of these Brahma Viharas together can give us the strength and the ability to open the heart and connect with the world. So for those of you who don't know, the, uh, there are four what are called Brahma Viharas or divine abodes, and they are loving-kindness or metta. I think Michelle listed these, but I'll list them again. Uh, loving-kindness or metta. Compassion or Karuna, Um, Appreciative Joy or Mudita, and Equanimity or Upeka. And as a package, these four describe the responsive heart, the connected and engaged heart with the world. So they're the flavors of a metta heart, these four Brahma Viharas. And the four of them together help us understand a comprehensive and balanced way to love in this world. So we start with metta, which focuses on seeing the good in others and wishing well. It's considered the foundation, a basic friendliness of heart. And then compassion takes that friendliness of heart and orients it towards suffering. And the heart responds with care. And then the mudita is taking, or the appreciative joy is taking that open heart and orienting it towards beauty and joy and happiness and success in this world. brings some sense of balance with all of the suffering. And lastly, equanimity is the quality that holds all of this connecting with balance and ease, non-reactivity of mind, peace. So we've talked a lot about metta, and uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the other three, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So the task of the open heart is to relate to this world of joy and sorrow. And we can do this with the protection of metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. We really need this balance if we're going to make it. We need all four of these. And these are the alternative protections to the closed fist or the closed heart the heart that's protected by attachment and aversion, which is our usual protections. That's the closed fist, attachment and aversion. So compassion. As I said, compassion is taking this friendly heart and orienting it towards suffering. And if our heart is, if our heart is open and uh, we meet suffering, the natural response is compassion, is care. So the training in compassion is the training to meet suffering with care rather than resistance. Compassion is tenderness in response to suffering for me it's a sweet and poignant feeling the sweetness is the connection it's that feeling of being connected to ourselves or to another the lack of separation it's very sweet and the poignancy is is that we are connecting with suffering a very vulnerable Part of life. So our understanding of compassion then must include our understanding of how we relate to suffering, or how we relate to dukkha. Our Exploration of compassion will often include an exploration of the, what we call the near-neighbors of compassion or the qualities of mind that, that can be confused for compassion. So sometimes we might think that despair and grief are compassion, so we'll meet suffering and the response is despair and grief, and sometimes we think that's compassion. There's a book by Sharon Salzberg where she describes giving a retreat in Russia and having um, this word uh, compassion translated into Russian. And she kept getting this feeling like somehow the translation wasn't going well. So she finally asked the translator, well, how do you describe compassion? And he said, I describe a state of being terribly overcome with someone's sorrow, like having a stake through your heart. (laughs) And having the burden of someone's pain burdening you, too. <laughs> we laugh, but sometimes, you know, we, sometimes we have this feeling that if we aren't hurting when we're connecting with somebody suffering, that we're not being compassionate. Compassion is a pleasant feeling. It's a kind of happiness. Now, obviously, it's not like hip, hip, hooray. I mean, we are dealing with suffering here, but, but it's, it's pleasant in its tenderness and its softness. So that, that translation, it's not like it's wrong, but it doesn't have the acceptance, the balance of acceptance and wisdom. Or another thing that sometimes we will think is compassion is pity. But true compassion is a relationship between equals. We see that pity is not a relationship between equals. Pity is, is, is a separation. I'm over here and you're down, because you're suffering, you're down there. That's not compassion either, because compassion is the connection is between equals. It's, it's with, it comes out of our gut feeling that we're the same that we're the same as humans, that we share this experience of suffering as humans. We share this vulnerability of living in this realm of joy and sorrow. One expression of compassion I like is by Ryokan, the Japanese hermit poet, he says, Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. It's that large heart that wants to hold suffering and there's no aversion in that, that sentence. There's a certain even lightness, but you can tell the seriousness is there too, it's, it's perfectly balanced. So by developing compassion, we develop the heart that is able to stay open in the face of suffering, a heart that doesn't need to reject this part of life. And we can cultivate it like metta. There's, there's also um, a, a, a way that we can um, formally cultivate compassion. We start with somebody who's suffering, and then we uh, also cultivate compassion for ourselves and benefact our dear friend, difficult person. I remember when I first did this practice as an intensive practice I started with a friend that was feeling um, a a lot of depression and uh, it was really hard at first. I was trying to connect with with the fact that she was really depressed, that I really cared about her, and how to connect with that without falling into grief. And actually, after a while, I, I, I realized I couldn't even start there. So I switched and worked with a woman at work whose husband was dying of cancer. And like, I was able to figure it out with her be, it, because it wasn't quite so intense. And then I, I took that and transferred it to working with my friend. So it's similar to the metta practice, that we, that we start with what's easy and, we, um, and then we translate what we learn to others. So compassion makes us strong. It gives us energy and confidence and tolerance. And every time that we engage with suffering in our own lives, in our practice sitting here, in our lives in general, uh, we can learn how to strengthen compassion. So we really learn, we can really learn it with ourselves in the same way that we learn metta, starting with ourselves. If we can feel that friendliness towards ourselves, it's easier to feel it towards others. And with compassion, if we can learn to feel compassion with whatever comes up for us, then we can extend that gift to others because we won't need to be reactive to their suffering. We'll have learned about it through our own practice. The Sufi mystic Rumi said, everyone chooses a suffering that will change him or her to a well-baked loaf. So that's what we're doing here, we're cooking. changing ourselves from raw dough to a well-baked loaf. So to develop compassion, we have to be willing to let suffering pierce our hearts and soften them. It's like um, using suffering as like a heart tenderizer. (laughs) Sometimes it feels a little bit like when you take a piece of tough meat and you <laughs> you tenderize it before you cook it. sometimes it can get intense. <laughs> One of my compassion heroes, somebody who I have I learned so much from um, is a woman named Eddie Hillison. Um She has a book or had a she she was a young Jewish woman in Amsterdam in the 19, early 1940s, which was bad news. And uh, she, there's a book called An Interrupted Life, which is uh, a copy of her diaries over two years, from like 1942 to 44, or 40 to 42, somewhere in there. And it shows how she... Um, works with the immense amount of suffering that was in her community with Hitler invading um, her country and and, uh, people getting sent off to the camps. And she, over the two years you see her change from a kind of self-absorbed young woman to a deeply compassionate, mature woman and it comes from engaging the suffering directly. And she goes through a lot of trips, ups and downs, despair, um, times when she just can't take it. Uh, but over the, over the book, you can see that she gets this heart that's so strong in compassion that it can hold anything. And when I read this book a number of years ago, it gave me so much faith because she's just started out as an ordinary person, and if she could learn compassion under those circumstances, I thought, you know, I think I can do it with my life. She writes at one point, after quite a bit later in the uh, book. I have looked our destruction, our miserable end, straight in the eye and accepted it into my life and I continue to grow from day to day, even with death staring me in the face, for my life has become extended by death. Living and dying, joy and sorrow, the blisters on my feet and the jasmine behind the house, the persecution, the unspeakable horrors, it is all as one in me, and I accept it all as one mighty whole. In the end, she uh, was offered an escape route. She had connections. She was offered uh, to escape from Amsterdam, and she chose not to. She chose to stay with her people, and she wound up being sent to one of the camps and, and killed. But she lived such a full life and learned so much, such an inspiration. Understanding compassion also comes from understanding um, that we all within us have the seeds of love and the seeds of anger and hate. This understanding opens up the possibility for compassion for others when um, they are suffering or acting unskillfully because we've seen that in ourselves and we don't have to reject it. There's a beautiful poem by Thich Han. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's called Call Me By My True Names. And he says, I am the mayfly on the river and the bird which eats the mayfly. I am the frog swimming in the pond, and I'm also the grass snake who feeds on the frog. I am the child in Uganda starving, and I am the arms merchant selling weapons to Uganda. So he goes through this poem and he doesn't make himself separate from those who are causing suffering. He understands um, that within himself he also has the potential to cause harm. At the end, he says, my joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear my cries and my laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are but one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. So deeply understanding ourselves, understanding our suffering, our unskillful tendencies opens the door of compassion. True compassion is very humble. Again, it creates no separation. So compassion, fully developed compassion, includes an an acceptance of the truth of suffering. That's where the equanimity comes in. But that doesn't mean that it's passive. Thich Nhat Hanh said, compassion is a verb. So when our hearts are strong in compassion, of course, we wish to alleviate suffering. Of course, when we see injustice, we want to do something about it. So acceptance is a starting point. It's not an ending point. Compassion carries with it the wish to help others be happy and to alleviate suffering. Part of the equanimity of compassion is that while we do wish to alleviate suffering and do what we can to bring about positive change, we realize that we can't control the outcome of our efforts. So the equanimity is the non-attachment to outcome. Ultimately, we have to hold the truth that we can't control suffering. We can't control dukkha. It's part of this realm, this human realm that we live in. I learned a lot about working with uh, compassion through um, a job that I've had for a number of years. I don't do it much anymore because I teach too much, but I worked for a number of years in community mental health and um, an inner city. It's a town in our area, but it's very much an inner city environment. And um, when I started working there I hadn't spent a lot of time um, unders- in a place where the conditions were so challenging. Town is called Holyoke and um, there's a lot of poverty and uh, racism and violence and all the things that can accompany suffering and difficult economic situations. And I speak Spanish so I was working with uh, Puerto Ricans, um, many of them also suffering from Uh, institutionalized racism and many other um, challenges. And so at first when I was working there, people would tell me what was going on in their lives and I didn't know what to do with this. I didn't know what to do with with the um, immense amount of suffering that I was hearing about. And it took me some time. It took me some time to see that what was most important was to care and obviously to help as much as I could, but to care and um, that I couldn't fix it all, to let go of that attachment to fixing it. I so wanted to fix everything the first couple of years. It was, it was, it was, that's where we head for burnout, right? So I had to learn to um, trust in my caring and to trust that um, that would have to be enough. Caring and trying to help, but not attached to the outcome. So the amount of suffering in this world is enormous. I don't think anybody would argue with that. So we really have to learn how to engage with it in a way that we're not overwhelmed. And so with our own practice, when suffering comes up, if it's too intense and we're really overwhelmed, we talk about learning how to back off, right? How to go to something neutral like the breath, take a walk, um, learn how to pull ourselves out and rest the mind. This is so important, not just in our practice, but in this world. For example, I, I make it a um, a point to educate myself about what's going on in the world these days, but as all of you know, it's 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 a little bit intense. And so I monitor, like, how much I do that and how much I can take in, and when is it time to do something different. Or like when I'm listening to the news and it's just more, more and more um, bad news at a certain point, if I see that that's just leading me towards despair or anger, I turn off the news. So it's like we we learn how to engage with suffering, but we have to learn it at a pace that's reasonable that our hearts can handle. And so respecting our hearts and what they can handle and knowing how to take care of ourselves so that we truly can develop compassion. Which leads us to the next Brahma Vihara, appreciative joy, which is a great balancer for dukkha. This world is not just about suffering. It's also a place of incredible beauty and joy and many kinds of happiness. And so appreciative joy is about learning to tap into that. I want to read a poem by Hafiz, um, another Sufi mystic. And uh, I think it has a G word in it. I hope you can handle that. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Someone Untied Your Camel. Is your caravan lost? It is if you no longer weep from gratitude or happiness or weep from being cut deep with the awareness of the extraordinary beauty that emanates from the most simple act and common object. My dear, is your caravan lost? It is if you can no longer be kind to yourself and loving to those who must live with the sometimes difficult task of loving you. At least come to know that someone untied your camel last night, for I hear its gentle voice calling for God in the desert. At least come to know that Hafiz will always hold a lantern with galaxies blooming inside. Is your caravan lost? We're lost if we can't appreciate the beauty in this world. We're just not going to make it. <laughs> so, this last, this third Brahma Vihara of Mudita, sometimes it's called sympathetic joy or empathetic joy. I like appreciative joy. So, it's about connecting with happiness and joy in life, in other people's lives. It's considered an unselfish kind of joy, taking delight in others' happiness and success and appreciating the blessings of life. So we turn that friendliness of metta, that open heart of metta towards happiness and beauty. And we connect with other people through knowing that happiness is also a universal experience, just as suffering is. So we recognize our shared capacity for happiness. The Buddha called it the mind deliverance of gladness. Frees the mind of contraction, opens and gladdens it. So there's a couple different ways that I'm talking about it. One is appreciating beauty in this world, and another is as, as a practice, again, with others appreciating um, the happiness in other people's lives. Just like we cared for the suffering, we can appreciate the happiness. And so we're taught to, to take delight in others' happiness without reservation. Not always easy. It has its own challenges. The Dalai Lama said that it increases our chances for happiness 6 billion to (laughs) 1. Pretty good odds. I think we'd all bet on that. (laughs) So with with this Brahma Vihara, we begin to understand that happiness is limitless and that others having more doesn't mean that we have less. In fact, happiness um, just... uh, expands. (laughs) And when we strengthen this quality, we lessen the forces of jealousy and stinginess in our minds, and encourage the forces of gratitude and contentment and generosity. And this too can be developed as a practice of its own. Um, we usually start with somebody who's happy who we know who's very happy at the moment and then go through the same categories and we if we use phrases they may be such phrases as I appreciate your success or may you um, may your happiness continue sometimes the four brahma viharas are are um, Described as how we would connect with children as they grow up and so metta is that feeling you have upon seeing a baby just easily friendly and connected and compassion is that feeling that if you see a child that's hurt you care you want to do something and mudita, uh, our appreciative joy, is described as when that child has grown, is growing and has having success in the world and stretching his or her wings and that feeling of happiness we feel for them. And the last one, equanimity, as long as I'm on this, is um, described as when the child leaves home and we have to let go. Mudita, I like to use a Pali word for appreciative joy. Mudita is called a, the Buddha called it a rare and beautiful quality. And interestingly, it's said to be the hardest one to develop. And I was surprised when I first heard that because I would have thought compassion would be harder just because it's dealing with suffering. But it's interesting, we don't easily um, celebrate other people's happiness. It brings up Um, its own obstructions to work with. Forms of aversion such as envy and judgment and comparing, competition. But Mudita also nourishes many wholesome mind states. So what I mentioned was um, an appreciation of, of beauty in this world. Meditation really helps us connect with the beauty by helping us learn how to be present, right? We can't really connect with beauty in this world if we're not here, if we're scattered. And when we learn through meditation to bring our attention to our senses, we find that our appreciation becomes much more refined colors are more alive tastes are more uh, are stronger richness of sounds like the bell if you've listened to the bell at the end of a sitting so much happens so much richer when we listen to it with a mind that's collected. This is what meditation can help do for us in this area of strengthening appreciation. There's a really simple kind of joy that we can experience just looking at the inside of a flower, or the arc of a blade of grass and the shadow on the ground. Just really simple things. I read a quote somewhere. I don't remember where I saw it. But it said, people from a planet without flowers would think we must be mad with joy the whole time to have such good things about us. so this kind of appreciation gives us the strength Let's See if I have the whole thing here There's this book I read by a woman named Meredith Hall called Without a Map and she um wrote about having a, a child um, this was in the 60s I think where having a child out of wedlock was um, considered a bad thing to do <laughs> and so she had this child and was pretty much forced to give the child up for adoption and went into quite a depression afterwards and um, She wound up being sent to this school away to finish her last year of school. She was pretty much shunned by everybody, her family included. And um, so she talks in this uh, book about what helped turn her around. She says, there's this uh, um, teacher who asked her to go walking in the woods. Let's, let us go see something in the woods, Dr. Von Barravel says to me. He says something. We are walking in the woods and fields behind the school. It is late afternoon and t- early October. I feel terribly shy with this old man. He is legendary, legendary, the brilliant mathematician who comes to high mowing school every fall to teach a block in geometry. I already had geometry as a sophomore, but Ms. A- Mrs. Emmett insists that I studied again with Dr. Von Beravelle. I am certain that you missed the whole idea, she says. I don't know why this old stoop man has asked me to come with him. I don't know if this is meant to be a tutorial, remedial math for the girl who missed Waldorf until her last year in school, or if I had been, for some reason, chosen. Now look at this, my dear girl, the old mathematician says, lifting a pale violet aster between his thick fingers. What do you see? I freeze with uncertainty. I just want to return to my room. A cool breeze blows across the field from the southwest, rippling the stiff brown heads of Timothy. It's all right, he says. You can at least lean down to look. Tell me what you see. A little purple flower, I say? Well, yes, it is that, but what else do you see? Tell me exactly what you see. I feel as if this is a test. I see a little purple flower with frilly petals around a yellow center that's like a button. Exactly, he says. Now what about those petals? I bend closer to the aster. Well, they're tiny and short. There are three rows of them, actually. I'm surprised at this. It seems interesting. Yes, three rows, one below the other. Now what else do you see? I am lost. There doesn't seem to be anything more to observe. Look at those rows, he says gently. Oh, each one is offset from the one above it, like dials. Exactly. Now what do we have here, he asks himself as he wanders slowly around the field. This is called what? I think it's Queen Anne's Lace. So he tells some more about the flower. I know this flower and its musky scent from the field beside my childhood home, but now I look more carefully this time before I speak. I describe the familiar flat white flower head with its little drop of blood in the center. Then I see that the big flower is actually made up of several dozen groups of little flowers, and each tiny flower has five petals shaped like mittens, and rising from each minuscule flower are golden stamens. As I hold the flower closer to my eyes, the sun illuminates it as if it is glowing from inside. Oh, I say, each little antenna ends in a tiny little ball. (coughs) Exactly, he says. He is very animated. You see today that every creation is made in perfect symmetry. Its symmetry is what makes it beautiful to our eyes. And the light coming through it. Yes, and the light coming through it. (coughs) We will draw these flowers tomorrow. I will show you how. You will use the compass and trace out the universal perfection of form. I don't really understand, but I don't want to go inside yet. We walk slowly in the fields and the woods that are filled with leaves, falsy heads, dark branches reaching towards the light, vines, fungi, and the old mathematician patiently asking me to see. And then she describes how this is the turning point for her, in, her dep- in working with depression, that this is when she starts to come out, that ability to connect closely with the beauty of nature and to let it nourish her. Attending to the beauty in this world gives us the courage to feel connected and the appreciation to feel uplifted. And it's desperately needed in our society today and in our hearts, water and nourish our hearts. Beauty opens us, it makes us more receptive I love those moments when I'm outside and I'll catch just something very beautiful. And if we really pay attention, we can become totally still in that moment, totally receptive to the universe, nourished and at peace. There's a poem by Robert Penn Warren called Ornithology in a World of Flux. There's something about this poem that I just really love that I think has something to do with what I was just saying. (coughs) It was only a bird call at evening, unidentified, as I came home from the spring with water across the rocky back pasture. But I stood so still, sky above was not stiller than sky and pale water. Years pass, all places and faces fade. Some people have died. And I stand in a far land, the evening still, and am at last sure that I miss more that stillness at bird call than some things that were to fail later. But deep longing we have to connect with the beauty in this world and the stillness that can come from that. I am at last sure that I miss more that stillness at bird call than some things that were to fail later. Many years he remembers, many years later he remembers that moment. So one way that I, I really work with it, um, being able to hold the immense amount of suffering that exists in this world is by balancing it with beauty. Many, many little ways. It's very much a, um, uh, recommended by the Buddha for folks that are dealing with a lot of fear or anger or despair, is beauty. So I like to put wildflowers on the table or watch the birds eat at the feeder or even just take time to appreciate a cup of tea. It's um, a little different than the kind of quiet time that Michelle was talking about yesterday. (laughs) So (laughs) learning uh, to appreciate a different kind of quiet time that perhaps is a little more um, nourishing. So that's one aspect of um, mudita. And then another aspect is this really um, appreciating when others are happy, really delighting in others' success. It's not so easy. (laughs) Envy can... um, come up as something that we have to figure out how to make peace with or that feeling there's not enough for me. A number of years ago there was a a teacher here um, at IMS and it was kind of before I started teaching very much and um, she seemed to have a a really good life, she had connections with the people I wished I was connected with, and uh, she seemed to have lots of opportunities, and I did not feel mudita. Um, I I felt a lot of envy towards her, and it was really quite torturous. I I wouldn't come over here often, but when I did and I would see her, you know, it would kind of send me into this spiral of envy, and um, like I lacked somehow, you know, that deep feeling of lack. And I, I worked with it over a number of years. <laughs> I didn't come that often, but I really, you know, I worked with, with really paying attention to what was happening. is mean, a really interesting um, mind state. There's, there's layers. It gets really deep into some kind of um, unworthiness or not being enough. And after working with it for a long time, And it kind of lightened and lightened. And then one time I was teaching with her. This was years later. And she gave a really nice Dharma talk. And I sat there and I just felt really happy for her. I felt mudita. And it was like such a relief. It was so much nicer than feeling envy. Um, You know, it's spacious. A heart with mudita is spacious. It, It can include other people's happiness. But again, it can sometimes be a practice that we work at. We work with. Now, as all the um, Brahma Viharas have a near neighbor, or a, a, a mind state that seems to be what um, like mudita, but isn't. The near neighbor of Mudita is over-exuberance. So over-exuberance is when we get too carried away with beauty and with somebody else's happiness. And for me, the over-exuberance comes from some kind of feeling of, um, like we'll insert some kind of feeling of permanency that this is going to last forever. That's for me when I, that's how the over-exuberance manifests. So, so the equanimity balance for Mudita is to understand that while we appreciate beauty and while we appreciate joy and happiness, they, they will change. That's the kind of universe we live in. Last fall, when I was teaching here, often on the way, I would go home sometimes to Western Mass and I would go for a walk in the Quab in the a big um, reservoir in the middle of the state. And it was beautiful in the autumn in here the, in, in this area. The leaves change, it's gorgeous. And so I was going for a walk one day and it was like it was really beautiful out and I was really appreciating it. And there was something, though, that I just felt there's something out of balance here. It just didn't feel right. And, um, and I realized that the over-exuberance was coming from the fact that I I was trying to hold on, and that I wasn't accepting that it was going to change. It was going to go. And so I, I was like, oh, this isn't going to last. And then there was a calming to the peace and the connection. It, it had a much um, more balanced feel to it, that balance that comes from equanimity. So focusing on appreciative joy brings this um, balance that we need with uh, compassion. Compassion and mudita they, they support and balance each other so Compassion keeps mudita from kind of degenerate, degenerating into some blind op- optimism. But mudita keeps us from drowning in the, uh, the immense amount of sorrow that's in the world. Voltaire said, life is a shipwreck, but we must not forget to sing in the lifeboats. So Moody does that singing in the life, in the lifeboats. <laughs> we really need this right balance. It's what makes the heart strong and durable. And this brings us to the last Brahmavihara, which is equanimity. Equanimity is the great balancer. So the first three um, Brahmaviharas—metta and compassion and mudita—they all um, they warm the heart and energize the heart and. Um, Equanimity is, the is, is, it cools the heart, brings that balance of mind. So equanimity is really understanding that life is a mixture of joy and sorrow and that it weaves through every life and that this happens according to the laws of cause and effect are the law of karma and that um, We can't control it. That's the big uh, teaching with equanimity. So equanimity is the letting go, like when the child grows up and moves out of the home and we know we have to let them go and live their life. So equanimity respects that everybody has their life to live and has their own karma, and that we can wish well, and we can care, and we can appreciate, and we can't control. So equanimity is that ability to let go of attachment to things being the way we want them to be, and that deep acceptance and relaxation into the way things are. It can also be developed with phrases and, and with um, connecting in that way, the, the way we've been doing. The traditional phrase seems a bit shocking sometimes at first. We hold somebody in our hearts and we say, you are the owner of your actions. Your happiness and sorrow depend upon your actions and not my wishes for you. Are you the owner of your karma? Your happiness and sorrow depend upon your actions and not my wishes for you. And if we don't deeply understand, that can seem like, whoa, that's mean. It's not meant to be mean. It's meant to be, um, it's meant to free us from attachment. Another equanimity phrase that I use a lot or often enough is, um, things are as they are. So we can imagine all the books we're working with and just things are as they are. I use this in life when I find myself struggling with a situation that really isn't mine to control. It's just like, oh, things are as they are. It brings that relaxation and that end of struggle. That's what equanimity is like. It's like a deep trust in the universe. With equanimity, we're saying, I trust the unfolding of the universe. There's an Ojibwe saying that says, sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the time I am being carried on great winds across the sky. So equanimity is that trust. I am being carried on great winds across the sky. And as with the other ones, um, other Brahma Viharas, equanimity also has a near neighbor, and the near neighbor of equanimity is indifference. So sometimes we can think that indifference is equanimity. It can masquerade as equanimity. But there's a big difference between indifference and equanimity in that equanimity um, is connected. So equanimity is not a detached, non-caring. It's a connected, caring acceptance. It's harder than indifference. So true equanimity is um, engaged and cares but, but with balance without depending on the outcome being according to our wishes, a great protection. So metta develops friendliness. Compassion helps us stay connected and caring in the face of suffering. Mudita celebrates happiness and beauty. And equanimity holds it all in the great wisdom of karma and of impermanence. I think I'll end with another poem by um, uh, Hafiz. There is a wonderful game. There is a game we should play, and it goes like this. We hold hands and look into each other's eyes and scan each other's face. Then I say, now tell me a difference you see between us. And you might respond. Hafiz, your nose is 10 times bigger than mine. Then I would say, yes, my dear, almost 10 times, but let's keep playing. Let's go deeper, go deeper, for if we do, our spirits will embrace and interweave. Our union will be so glorious that even God will not be able to tell us apart. There is a wonderful game we should play with everyone, and it goes like this. Let's sit for a minute. May our hearts be made strong in metta, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. for some walking and then the chanting at nine o'clock thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate